Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds good, sounds great. Monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And monthly co-host Cap Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Dr. Megan Rose. And she has a book called Spirit Marriage, Intimate Relationships with Otherworldly Beings. Thank you for coming on today. Hi, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here today. So what got you interested in relationships with non-human entities? Yeah. Well, I like to say I kind of came out of the womb and swam in those waters growing up. I was raised in the Pentecostal Christian tradition. And, um, you know, the Pentecostals are all of those fun folks that like to speak in tongues and yeah, channel the Holy Snakes. Do you ever do the yeah, well, I do. No, that, that was more of a Southern. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. That was more of a Southern sort of the dancing in the spirits and the rattlesnake snake stuff was a little more Southern Pentecostalism. Mm. But I did grow up with, you know, every twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday, um, speaking in tongues and essentially channeling, you know, what, um, what the Pentecostals call the Holy Spirit. Um, but what for me felt a lot like this <clears throat> powerful, like arousing energy. Um, and I say arousing because that's sort of what our body, how our body registers when we have really power, powerful spiritual forces that merge or in mm. or move through us. Um, and later on, I would sort of come to understand that that was actually um, what's sometimes called the feminine face of God or the goddess that was kind of, and even in, in some Christian traditions, they talk about how the Holy Spirit is um, the Shekinah or the, um, the, the goddess. So, yeah, so kind of growing up with that energy just alive and running through my body, um, doing a lot of the, you know, practices that um, cultivate the gifts of the spirit, which are, you know, prophecy and um, other languages and um, the sort of charismata that follows. Um, so that was just kind of like the water that I swam in all throughout my childhood. And then, you know, when I became a young adult and became a little more critical of the um, church and some of the teachings of, you know, the fundamentalist Christian aspects. Um, I decided to go to seminary and study it, right? Like try and understand what is this vitalism that is spirituality um, that shows up transculturally. And one of the things that kind of clued me in that it was like irrespective of um, 
Christianity, right? Was, well, there was two things. One is as a kid growing up, I learned that I could feel that same sort of Pentecostal spiritual awakening out in nature, particularly when I was like talking to trees or, or next to like growing up in the Bay Area, we have lots of redwoods, really ancient oak. And so I would be with the trees and I would have that same sort of um, experience. And so I was like, oh, that's really curious. This is not in my church service. So this is maybe not bound to just a Christian experience. And then later in life, um, I began to practice yoga. And I remember this one day I had been practicing and then I was laying in corpse pose in Shavasana. And all of a sudden that, that energy of being spirit filled arose um, in my body, sort of irrespective of nothing other than just having done these certain asanas, these postures. And I was like, that's fascinating. Um, and that sort of sent me down a whole rabbit hole of studying um, uh, alternative health, medicine, um, spirituality, esotericism, uh, yoga, and um, some of the, the Taoist healing arts and uh, ceremonial magic and a whole bunch of other things that uh, really was on this quest to try and understand what is this intimacy that we experience in our bodies or can experience in our bodies um, that is um, directed by something perhaps other than ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess we, we all experience arousal from other people, which is something other than ourselves. But I think, like, like you're like, like the idea of, like, say, I don't know, communicating with a tree and feeling some kind of arousal. Um, how, how does that work? Well, there's a really beautiful Taoist practice called tree breathing, where you stand in front of a tree. And you, um, and this is using sort of qigong movements, qi, mm-hmm. um, or tai chi movements. And you're sort of breathing down into your roots and imagining as you breathe down into your roots that your breath is going into the tree's roots, right? And then you, uh, you inhale and the energy rises up the tree and out the top of the tree. And then you breathe, um, and inhale it down through your crown, right? And then you exhale through your roots and it goes up the tree. So you're circulating this breath with a tree and then you reverse it and you do it in the other direction. And um, so again, you know, it's these enlivening, I like to say it touches into our vitality, um, which is our whole beingness, right? Like vitalism isn't just in our pelvis, mm-hmm. right? Where we tend to think of eroticism. It's our, our, our we have these full body um, experiences of connection, right? Whether it's with a human or whether it's with um, something that, uh, you know, a, a, a beautiful sunset, right? That gives us the delicious shivers all over our body, right? Where we go into that feeling of ecstasis, or I like to call it the feeling of exaltation. It's like our whole body goes into, ah! mm-hmm. and, um, and many of the Taoist, um, the Taoist uh, love practices and the tantric practices talk about these kinds of moments of union or intimacy that are paranormal, right? Or beyond otherworldly, beyond just 
what we would think of as mundane human to human contact. And it plays a very important part actually in a lot of the deity yoga practices of the East. So um, it's sort of a known thing in, um, in sort of Eastern Tantra and Eastern sacred sexuality. And it's a, a newer practice here in the West in that, you know, we still think of a lot of sacred sexuality as a human to human thing. And um, there is an aspect of it, an important aspect of it that is the human and the divine or the human and the beloved, the otherworldly beloved. So what are some of the reasons or purposes of um, humans having intimate relationships with the spirit world? Well, the the accounts of it date back to like some of our earliest origin myths um, and the first recorded accounts of it that I was able to trace when I did this research was like ancient Mesopotamia and Sumeria, the Sumerian sacred marriage. Mm -hmm. And in that case, um, the priests and the priestesses of the goddess Ishtar would marry the goddess and become uh, essentially the temple keeper, the shrine keeper to the goddess. And so their primary function, their primary devotion was to her. Now, that may not have been for their whole lives. They might have been married and monastic in that devotional role. They might not even have been monastic necessarily, um, or I should say celibate. They might not have been celibate, but they were sort of devoted to the goddess, their marriage to the goddess or the god, um, because this wasn't just Ishtar that we see this practiced in. But it, it set them apart as ministers, right? As priests, priestesses, as people in service to their community um, to, in some cases, mediate, but I think um, often to 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 keep the temple up, to keep the the worship of the the deity alive and fed. You know, a lot of these um, traditions uh, still practice to this day. Um, there is daily offerings and daily rituals that are done in service to the um, the deity, and so. Um, in that case, it was sort of a function of the, the role of the, the minister. Um, but then you see, you look at some of the folkloric and anthropological accounts and the myth, the mythological accounts. And often this intimacy between a human and an otherworldly being. And I use the term spirit because that's just sort of the most overarching umbrella term that helps people understand that these are not human in physically incarnate beings at this time, but a spirit could be a deity or an angel or a ancestor or an elemental or a fairy or a, you know, on and on and on. But, um, the idea that a human can step into a bonded relationship, a bonded intimate relationship and int intimacy can look like all sorts of different things, right? It's not necessarily sexual, but a bonded, intimate, committed relationship with this otherworldly being usually precipitated in the human a kind of evolution, a kind of evolution of their consciousness, uh, usually hastened extraordinary spiritual um, powers or um, ESP, we talk about that, or the extra psychic senses, um, in, again, in the East, uh, in the Indic accounts, uh, the, ari the arising of cities, right? The spiritual powers often were a byproduct of this type of union. 
How would a person be able to discern whether they're having an intimate relationship with an otherworldly being versus something that's just in their imagination? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I like to encourage people. Well, there's, there's sort of two pieces to that. One is, um, we want to make sure that we have really good checks and balances in place, um, that help us discern, right? Discern what is the spirit? Is this a viable contact? Um, is this an inner aspect, right, of myself that is just sort of either wish fulfillment or, um, ancestral or whatever? Um, and checks and balances can look a lot of different ways, right? Discernment can be cultivated through divinatory practices, through, um, I really encourage, you know, if people are having these kinds of experiences or think they might be headed into them, make sure you've got a mentor. Um, make sure you've got somebody who's gone before you that knows the territory that you know, like, and trust that isn't going to invalidate your extraordinary experiences out of the gate, but that is also going to really help you tease apart what is, um, what is beneficial and what might be sort of distracting you or, um, or taking you down a, a path you don't want to be going down. So having, you know, in, in my case, um, I, uh, was having a contact which sort of precipitated all of this research in the very first place, kind of set me on the path of this inquiry. And so I had a transpersonal psychotherapist that I was working with, somebody who was trained in shamanism. Um, and so that was one of my checks and balances. And then I found a mentor really quickly who was also in a spirit marriage himself, Orion Foxwood. And he became one of my checks and balances. So that's really, I think, key um, that you don't try and go it alone. You have some sort of community around you. And then the other thing is really um, setting up a kind of devotional practice where you get to know the being. I like to say that spirit marriage is kind of like an advanced phase of spirit contact. You know, there's kind of channeling and mediumship and, um, and ways that we kind of work with or can potentially work with spirits for different purposes. And spirit marriage happens when you've kind of been dating a while and you just like in, you know, human marriage, you want a deeper commitment for, you know, some sort of purpose or outcome, whether it's your personal evolution or there's some sort of co-creative project you need to bring out into the world or want to bring out into the world. In my case, it was this book. Um, and the marriage is then, you know, like in a human marriage, you're committing to being in a relationship with that spirit or spirits for uh, extended, maybe for the rest of your life, maybe for many lifetimes. Hmm. During a spirit marriage, um, since there's the lack of a physical, another physical being, um, can you have like an argument? Yeah, I mean, um, so part of my research uh, was to interview uh, nine different practitioners of spirit marriage. Um, because I was really interested, not just in the history and anthropology of it, right? Mm -hmm. But I wanted to know what, how is it still happening and why? And so I talked to nine different people in seven different 
traditions, really different traditions from like fairy seership to voodoo practitioners to African um, indigenous or traditional religion practitioners to witches and magicians, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that was really interesting about what um, most of my co-researchers or the people that I interviewed told me was that they what created the potency and the um, their sense of agency in the relationship was their ability to set boundaries and push back against their spirit spouses. So one of my teachers, RJ Stewart, has said, you know, they do things we can't, the spirits, but we do things that they can't. So we actually come to the relationship with with gifts and with talents. And that's usually why we've been sort of invited into the relationship is because we have a certain skill set that they think that will benefit, you know, whatever work that they're trying to get out into the world. And so um, that does not mean that we just sort of bow down and say, just like you would with, you know, your human partner, you don't just say, well, your way is the only way. And I'm just going to like surrender myself to you completely. And, and you, you call all the shots. We actually um, push back and set boundaries and negotiate quite a bit um, in these relationships to, you know, number one, because the, the spirits often, especially if they've never been in a kind of human physical form, they don't really understand what our boundaries are. So we have to make sure we're really clear about those. Um, and second of all, because it creates a sort of inner velocity inside of us that actually um, helps us understand uh, our, our sense of sovereignty, right? Our sense of self and agency and value in the relationship. Um, so it's not just, you know, you see in some monastic and, and devotional religions where it's just like, you know, the person prostrate on the floor in front of the, the, uh, the deity saying, you know, I'm, you know, a kind of, I'm your servant, do with me what you will. Um, we, we understand like there's a purpose and a function for that at some point in the relationship, but also that we really need to, um, have a healthy relationship dynamic like you would have in any relationship, so intimate are, or other. Are, are you in a spirit marriage now? Yeah. So the byproduct of me doing this research was the, my own, my own spirit union with, um, with the, the, the deity, the being that, appeared um to me like mm, it's been about 20 years and i say appeared but it was more like um i had a, a recurring dream where this being was showing up in my dream and establishing a relationship and then over time the being asked to marry me the deity asked to marry me and i thought well this is interesting i mean i i know that there's provenance for this in um like historical and mythological texts, but I didn't think this thing was still happening in contemporary times. And so that really, that, and, and it was more than once, you know, the, the proposal happened a, a few, you know, a number of times actually. And I was always like, well, I don't really know who you are, right? I haven't entirely um, identified who and what you're all about. And 
you know, just like with any human person, if they showed up and were like, oh, I want to marry you, I want to be in a relationship with you, you're going to want to get to know them, right? So I was like, well, you know, let me get to know you. Let me figure out what, is this even a thing, this marriage to a spirit thing? Let me figure this out. And, um, you know, I had already done my master's in seminary at the Graduate Theological Union. So I kind of put my scholar hat on and began to research it. And that's when I began to discover that it is, in fact, a contemporary practice in very niche pockets. And it's often kind of talked about in hushed tones um, because that there's a lot of misconception and a lot of prejudice around what's actually going on in this type of a, a bonded relationship. So I, I started researching it and, and the research really became the, um, the medium for me to unpack and then step into my own, my own bonded relationship. Hmm. So, so what deity are you having a relationship and what are the dynamics of this relationship and is it strictly just between you and this deity, or do you also have relationships with other humans? Yeah, no, I um, I am in a long-term relationship. I've been with my partner, my human partner, for 11 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, uh, we are both uh, pagan practitioners in the um, very seership tradition. And... Um, as well as I'm an initiated ceremonial magician and a Shakta Tantric practitioner. Um, and the deity that uh, originally began to manifest for me um, is a um, an aspect of Gwynep Neath, who is a Welsh deity. Mm-hmm. And um, my ancestors were uh, British, Welsh, Scottish, Celtic ancestors. So that made sense in that, you know, there was this sort of ancestral connection to this deity. And uh, Gwen is the sort of a version of the, the horned god, mm-hmm. god of the um, the fairy people, god of the um, underworld. But not, you know, the Christian underworld, right, of like pitchforks and flames and stuff. We're talking about the Celtic otherworld, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Isle of Apples, the land of the ancestors and the fairy people. Um, and so... It took me a while, though, to really discern um, that it was Gwen, or, or I should say, for him to fully reveal his name, which isn't, if you know anything about fairy lore and fairy work, it's not that uncommon. The fairy people are sort of res- reticent to reveal their names right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also shapeshifted a lot. So what he was presenting as mostly in dreams, but then later on in certain ritual and ceremonial workings that I was doing, um, was sort of, would, would shift and morph a lot. And so what became the telltale sign of his contact was the somatic or the physiological response that I would have. And that tracks to, um, you know, there's a number of people that talk about how the guise that they wear is less important than the the physical uh, response we have to them. RJ talks about that. Stan Groff talks about that um, in his work. So, so that's sort of how the the nature of the identity took shape for me, and that's why I said, you know. Uh, when the, that, the, that being began to first propose, I was like, I'm not saying yes right away. I don't really know you well enough and I don't know why this is, you know, happening. And, you know, it took me 
a while to really determine that this was in fact, right, a bona fide contact. Um, and not just, as I was saying, you know, earlier, a uh, sort of wish fulfillment. I, I worked with uh, a number of people to really discern that. Does your earth husband ever get jealous of your spirit husband or vice versa? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, no, not really. He, um, the interesting thing about our relationship is Gwen brought my partner to me. Um, the other, I was going to mention the other, um, sort of deity that I'm in a relationship with is the, the goddess figure, right? That I was talking about the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah. What I sort of work with as the goddess Isis Sophia mm-hmm. and, um, she's sort of been walking with me my whole life. I've always had this kind of deep connected relationship with her and she's more closely connected to my own divine self, right? We each have a divine, whether you want to call it an archetypal or a higher self or a true self. I mean, there's lots of different words. The Vodou practitioners talk about it as the Matet or the patron deity. The Dantrics talk about it as the Ishta Devi. Um, ceremonial magicians call it the holy guardian angel, right? We all have this, this tutelary or divine guiding presence that we are a, a manifestation of, a fractal of. And so she is also the being that I have had probably the, the longest knowledge of that relationship because that's kind of been there my whole life. And, um, and so when this, being that was definitively not her started showing up. I asked her, you know, well, you know, is it possible that there's another human, just like I am an expression of, of Isis Sophia, right? And you're an expression of whatever deity, you know, you're working deities that you're working with or flavors of the divine that you're working with. Um, maybe there's a human person, right? That is a flavor of, of Gwen, of this, this horned god being that, that I could be in a human relationship with. This is before I met my partner. And, and not too long after I did a kind of ritual around that, which I didn't realize at the time, but there's actually a precedent for that. Um, Jack Parsons, who was a, a major leader in the OTO back in the fifties, did uh, uh, the Babylon ritual and summoned to him his angel through the personage of Marjorie Cameron. And, um, so that was a really interesting, um, synchronicity when I found his story and discovered that he'd done a similar working. So I did a working and, um, the, uh, not too long after that, my partner showed up and is able to, has been able to sort of channel, if you will, that divine aspect of Gwen. And it's been a really, you know, it was a really powerful way in which we connected. And again, this isn't anything that is, like that we sort of made up part of the deity yoga practice in, and the tantric tradition is to do just this. You imagine yourself, you imagine uh, as, as the deity, you see the deity of, uh, in or with your beloved. And then you sort of draw those energies into your body and you do certain practices and workings together to sort of bring that alive in each other and to be the divine for the other person. So doesn't necessarily, um, cause jealousy. And, you know, I would, I would be, be very for myself, 
I would be very suspicious if I was working with a deity that was being super jealous and trying to isolate me from other, you know, humans, because we need human contact, right? We need human, um, whether we're in a, uh, intimate relationship with another human or not is totally beside the point. We need people in our lives, um, to, to, to function, right? <laughs> Just like be a fully fledged human being. Um, we have, there's a certain amount of relate relationship and relatability and community that is, 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 is healthy for folks. Um, I think we learned how unhealthy it is to not have people around us during, you know, the past few years of quarantine where it just, you know, people's mental health really suffered from the separation. So, um, I will say the caveat is that like, it sort of depends upon the being that you're working with because my, um, one of my co-researchers is a Shakta Tantric and she is married to the goddess Kali, um, the, who is a very fierce goddess. And um, she says that, you know, she has been in relationships and it's not that Kali prevents her from being in relationships, but Kali is such a powerful um, being and the sadhana or the spiritual practices that she's taken on to be in relationship with Kali has sort of created it so that she is more on the monastic side of relationship than, but, but she is also the, a guru. She's like the leader of a spiritual community and has many, many people sort of around her. But as far as her personal intimate relationships in life, she's mostly in a relationship with Kali and, um, and seems to understand and be pretty much okay with that. But everybody else that I interviewed, um, were in some sort of human relationship. They had, you know, a human spouse or um, committed human relationship. And some of these folks were in multiple spirit marriages, meaning they were married to more than one deity. And that's not uncommon in the Vodou tradition to be married to more than one Lua or deity in that tradition. In this situation, can you allow the deity that you're in a relationship to possess your body and then have your partner make love to your body, so therefore your partner is actually making love to the deity that's possessing you. That is one of the deity yoga practices. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Is there, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with, with, with the OTO and stuff. I've, I've interviewed Lon Milo Ducat, and I've read some oh. Crowley and stuff. Um, in sex magic, do you ever have a sexual relationship with a deity to create a third deity, such as an egregor, to do to to assist you in magical workings. I mean, yeah, that is one of the known practices to create a magical child through this. Um, the Buryat shamans that Mircea Eliadi interviewed in the nineteen forties and fifties. Um, talked about how they would have offspring, spirit off, uh, offspring in the spirit world, which function, which could function like tutelary spirits or, uh, various, um, uh, supportive spirits, right? Uh, and, but there's also 
precedent, like in the folkloric accounts of, um, I'm thinking right now of like the fairy offspring where a human and a fairy would uh, mate and then give birth to a human, mm-hmm. right? Who had a kind of hybridized very human consciousness. And I mean, if you go all the way back to like the Genesis accounts, the, the Genesis accounts, Genesis account, um, Genesis 6, 2 through 4 talks about the sons of God, how mm-hmm. they saw the daughters of men the and Nephilim. gave birth to Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Nephilim, whether it's the physical manifestation, whether it's an egregore or a magical child or tutelary spirits, I mean, there's a, a, a variety of ways that these can show up. I mean, I consider my book, which was originally my dissertation and then I turned it into a book. I consider to that to be the magical child, that intelligence. And, and the way that I did the research, which I talk about in the book, is I approached the, the research, I approached the topic as an intelligence, as an entity or a being that um, I was in a relationship with. And then, you know, so I'm doing all of the research and then the birth of that, right, is the, the, the book. And the book is kind of this magical child that's going out into the world and we're going to see what it's going to become, you know, as people read it and interact with it. Interesting. When people do this in a hand, like, like for example, the story of the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus, or like um, the movie Rosemary's Baby, where they do a satanic ritual to bring about the birth of the Antichrist, um, or any of those really horror movies from the 70s where they do that kind of stuff. Um, are, are people doing this? Are, are people out there getting impregnated by spirits and creating these hybrid beings now? And if so, is there a way to tell the difference between a normal human and a hybrid human? Mm. Well, I mean, that kind of brings up the topic of aren't we all kind of hybrid humans? If this has been going on from the beginning of history, right? And we think about how population growth grows exponentially. I'm thinking of an article that I read a number of years ago. It was a science article, actually. um, And I'm not going to remember the name of the author right now, but he was writing about, um, you know, the idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and have children. And um, it was sort of the whole holy blood, holy grail. Like there's this small group of people that are descended from the offspring of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And he's like, actually, if you crunch the numbers and you look at population growth, if Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a child 2,000 years ago and that child had children and that child had children so that the line carried on, we would all have inherited that extraordinary union or we would all have DNA. So, you know, it kind of goes back to the idea of like our, um, our origins or our mitochondrial DNA and, um, and how we are all sort of, um, at our roots, one peach, one people, one, one species, one, um, consciousness. Um, but to, to get into the questions of actual examples of, um, divine birth happening, Right now, um, I would point you to my colleague, uh, Dr. Marguerite Regolioso's work on virgin birth because she wrote her entire, uh, PhD dissertation and then wrote a number of books on this, um, on this phenomena of the offspring of human and otherworldly beings. Um, and it's, it's some fascinating research. So I would, I would say that her research points to the idea that it's still happening. 
And can we like get our DNA tested and see if we have other DNA? I, I don't, I don't think that the science is ready to go there yet and, and create those kinds of tests, nor I don't even know how we would, you know, validate that. But, um, Dion Fortune in the in the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century, wrote some interesting materials about um, how she had met a fairy human hybrid, and she talked about how they looked a little odd, and they had a really really high intelligence, and they were actually fairly attractive, and has had you know this charisma. So there's certain things that have traditionally been associated with these kind of. Um, offspring, at least in the fairy tradition, but I think you know you would have to look at culture to culture and see what the the uh, teachings are around. Um, you know, in the in the Nephilim accounts, they were supposed to be huge, right, giants, and they were able to do these s- superhuman feats. Um, and um, and then you know all sorts of wackiness ensued, right? Like. <laughs> There were some cool things that happened as a byproduct of the Nephilim, and there were some not so cool things that may have happened. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, and I don't know how we would actually validate that, other than people often have a really strong feeling and sense that you know I'm I'm I've got something else going on in here, um, and maybe the spirits might even reveal that to you. You know, um, I've had folks reach out to me to say that they've had otherworldly beings tell them that they are part of their spiritual, you know, spiritual ancestry, right? We have like ancestors of blood and bone, and then we have ancestors of spirit. Um, sex with these spirit beings, is it better than sex with humans? It's, I mean, I think it's different and it really depends on how you define sex. Um, right. We're not talking about, by and large, eroticism with these beings isn't for the same purposes that we have erotic contact with our human partners, right? Mm-hmm. We think of human partner erotic contact as either to procreate something or for pleasure. Um, and that might be a byproduct. Um, but again, it goes back to this idea of when these spirits touch into our bodies, it can feel really erotic, right? Our vitalism, our vitality can come into play. It's not necessarily because they're trying to have sex with us. Um, we, we know that that can happen and there might be reasons for that. But um, in the case of most of the folks that I talked to, the, the vitalism, the eroticism was... Um, simply a, a, a factor in connecting with a an energy, right, or an entity that is vibrating at a really different frequency than the human body is and, um, and interfaces with us in such a way that, like, our whole nervous system just kind of goes into, like, as I said before, exaltation. So... Um, and there are sex magic practices, there are tantric practices that you can actually, uh, uh, you know, actively use to cultivate a more erotic sense of uh, that contact in your body. But again, it falls under more of the auspices of sacred sexuality. You're doing it for um, maybe a different kind of purpose uh, than just 
pure pleasure. Although pure pleasure is wonderful and I'm very sex positive. So like we can use these practices for whatever we want to use them for. But oftentimes um, the entities aren't necessarily um, engaging with us in a sexual way. I should say the spirit marriage entities aren't necessarily engaging us with in a sexual way for the purposes of sex. Um, we could talk about incubi and succubi, but those aren't necessarily um, – a category of being that I'm talking about here in this research. Interesting. Is there a way to achieve a state of eternal orgasm, cosmic bliss, where it just never, ever goes away and you're constantly in that ecstatic state for your rest of your life and everything afterwards? I mean, I think that's a slippery slope trying to be in all want though, isn't it? <laughs> I I mean, I yes, but then like as Jack Cornfield said, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Like if we and I have met folks and have had prolonged ecstatic estates in my life and it's wonderful and it's beautiful, but like it doesn't make for a very functional living. Right. It doesn't, it, it, depending on the, like the level of volume, like if we're at a 10, uh, ecstatic state, there's not much else that you're doing. You're, you know, you're sort of in that samadhi state and you really need to have a strong community, an ashram, a something that can hold you in that state. Um, if you're in that kind of non-dual bliss space, um, if we dial it back to like a five, okay, you're in that state, you're holding that level, that vibration, that frequency, and, and maybe also, you know, teaching or doing healing work or getting some other things done. And then, you know, you take it down to a two and then you're like doing your taxes. And, but so there is, there is a way to have, um, a, a sense. And that is, I think, really where some of the teachings, because marriage, again, you know, we talk about spirit and marriage, right? And I've talked about what spirits are, you know, a marriage is, again, a very general term that most people get that a marriage is this sort of bonded, committed, sometimes lifelong, you know, oftentimes it could be multiple lifetimes, right? That you've been married to somebody, um, union and, um, and there are other words that are used, right? Um, there is the term, the merge or the indwelled, um, person with these, with these entities. Um, and in the, in the merge or the indwell, it does sort of facilitate a sense of constant presence of that being. Um, they might not be like Ralph talking in your ear <laughs> all, all, all day long, you know, a constant, you know, commentary. Um, but everybody experiences that a little bit differently. Like some of the indwelled or the mer the, the married folks, spirit married folks that I talked to do have a very lively cast of characters that they're hearing, you know, um, or in conversation with on a really regular basis. And then other practitioners, it's more of a ritualized process where they sort of open the aperture of their consciousness and allow more of that to flow through. Um, and then they'll, the aperture sort of closes a little bit. I love the way Orion Foxwood talks about this. Um, he talks about he's married to a, a fairy queen, Brie. 
And he talks about how when he closes his eyes, he sees into her world. And when he opens his eyes, she sees into his. And they're in an indwelled symbiotic relationship where she is never not with him. But that doesn't mean that she's fully like in a possessory state with him. It's more like um, uh, there's more fluidity there. Or like I said, with the aperture where there are times where she'll come forward more strongly in him or recede to more of the background when he's doing um, more mundane things in life. And um, but it's never, she's never far from his reach. And I think that there is a kind of bliss or blessedness that's bestowed upon um, upon that level of, of symbiosis. Yeah. When, what you're, what you're describing to me, you know, when he closes his eyes, she, he can see her world. When he opens his eyes, she can see him into our world. That sounds like a merging of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder sometimes if, if this might be the case with all people that we are just like, like for example, like, like what if all I am is, um, the combination of different consciousnesses inhabiting one body, but there's really no me. Yeah. Yeah. I love, um, the eco psychological approach to this or the Gaia theory approach, right? We're consciousnesses nested within consciousnesses nested within consciousnesses, right? And as humans, we are what earth or what Gaia does when she humanizes herself, but she also, you know, makes herself into trees and makes herself into oceans and makes herself into elephants, you know? Um, and all of those are different various expressions of Gaia's consciousness. And then within our own human ecology, right? We have this inner ecology. This is where, um, Asagioli's work of psychosynthesis, I think, is really, um, yummy because Asagioli says we have all these inner aspects, right? We have all these inner parts. Um, I like to call them the inputs. Um, and that is like the input of, um, the, the, there are inner parts, right? Like our rebel self and, you know, our child self and our wise self and the part of us, the parts of us that have been hurt or traumatized. And all of those are different aspects, right? That, that we could potentially be in conversation with, right? And then we have all these other inputs, right? You mentioned um, the egregore, right? We have these inputs of the morphogenetic field of our culture, uh, the morphic, morphic field of the family that we were raised in. So the ancestors, right? The epigenetic inputs, the inputs from, um, media and from, um, you know, uh, different groups that we might have initiated into or be involved in. So there's lots and lots of inputs going on inside of any individual human at any given time. And I think that's really why, you know, where uh, Socrates, right? When Socrates um, lauded, know thyself. I, I think know thyself is like, know what all of your different contexts, know what all of your different inputs are. Um, and it gets more complex, right? Than when we start talking about non non-human or otherworldly inputs that we could um, essentially, uh, that we could possibly be in conversation or contact with, right? So to really, you know, it's why discernment is such a key practice and having really good discernment skills um, and tools that you can use to discern 
the inner ecology and then the cultural ecology and then the sort of otherworldly or spiritual ecology that you're, that you're nested within. Hmm. So do you think like when like Carl Jung was talking about archetypes and stuff like that, then that these archetypes are actually these deities that kind of make up individual humans yeah. Yeah. In fact, Jung believed that. So, um, you, like later psychological application of Jung's archetypes has sort of diminished them into just these like ideas, but Jung's original, um, uh, interaction with archetypes and his original premise for these archetypes was very much these are these are external entities these are beings um jung himself um had a tutelary spirit or a gr- more than one he had a few tutelary spirits um philemon was uh one of the main ones and you see you know um in his red book which came out in 2009 his deep relationship with philemon and he actually attributed all almost all of his major theories the anima the animus archetypes the collective unconscious um and a, a number of the things that we associate with young in-depth psychology to his conversations with philemon so the whole book the Red Book is sort of this illuminated manuscript. It's this documentation of these interactions that he'd been having um, that he thought, you know, well, I might be going insane because I'm starting to see beings and have conversations with them, but I'm just going to go with it and see where it takes me. And he sort of surrendered to that, that, that active imagination process and went into conversation with these beings and then had some really extraordinary experiences. And he's not the only one. I mean, there are a few significant um, figures, uh, you know, here in our Western academic world um, that that did this type of work with tutelary spirits. Um, Rudolf Steiner is another great example. Um, who Steiner had a group that he called the Masters um, that he often channeled and spoke with um, and a lot of, and, and attributed a lot of his um, teachings like biodynamic farming and stuff to teachings that came from the masters. But in both cases with Jung and with um, Rudolf Steiner, the families and the foundations suppressed a lot of the mention of these extraordinary or otherworldly teachers from the material. Like the red book only came out until 2009 because the, the Jung's family had been sitting on it, you know, for 70 years or however long um, because that they didn't want it to get out that he was actually in conversation with these otherworldly beings because that they were afraid it was going to discredit him. Um, so it's kind of taken until now for, um, you know, the past 10, 15 years for that material to surface and for people to really start thinking in earnest about our relationships with otherworldly intelligences. Right. This has also happened with um, Tesla, Einstein, and even Steve Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jobs, I believe, was known to um, work with mushroom medicine and receive receive teachings um, in an entheogenic or a psychedelic state. Um, and that's you know part of the research as well. A lot of part of my research as well is there are plant spirit teachers that people um, step into 
uh, a relationship with. And um, I give an example in my book of a woman who married a plant spirit teacher. This plant spirit came to her and said, I want to marry you. And she was like, why? Why would you want to marry me? And he was like, um, the, the, the plant spirit was like, the human body is such an, a fun experience. And, you know, if you can just maintain a dieta for me so that I can, can stay in your body with you, um, being able to experience a human body is just, you know, especially, especially for a plant spirit that has never been in a human form. Um, it was a really, uh, a joyful experience. And then, you know, as a result, the plant spirit taught her things, which is, you know, we see this in many accounts with the ayahuasquetas, uh, of Peru and, and other, you know, Mazatec mushroom medicine work. With this kind of stuff, is there any danger of demonic possession? Well, I mean, we have to step back first and really unpack and ask ourselves how much of what we think of as demons is um, projected upon us by the very Western Christian culture that we live in, Mm -hmm. right? Because the fairy people and the people of the earth and the people of the underworld are um, the, some of the first beings that were demonized by the Christian church. Um, I like to say that, um, and I, and I have no problem. Like there's some really lovely forms of Christianity, but, um, you know, there was a time in Christian history where the Christians basically said, if you talk to our God or our spirits, like our angels, or maybe even our saints or the Holy spirit or Jesus, you're cool. Right. And if you talk to anything else, any other spirit, any other deity, it's a demon, right? And so there was this very big insider, outsider, us versus them demonization, right? Mm-hmm. Of any other entity that was not within this very narrowly defined good guy versus bad guy grouping. So now having said that, are there deleterious spirits? Are there spirits out there that don't have the best interests for humanity or that are maybe in um, an unelevated ancestor, right? Like, or a, a, a ghost, a hungry ghost. Like, yes, there are entities out there that do not have your best interests at heart. And that is why we talk about discernment. And that is why we talk about um, the the discipline of getting to know the spirit that is showing up and wanting to work with you, um, f- having the safeguards in place, the checks and balances of the community or mentor or guide or whatever, and really um, devoting yourself to a relationship with a being that you know, like, and trust. It's a benevolent being that demonstrates to you that it has your best interests at heart, just like you would in wanting to get involved in a human relationship you right we want friends we want loved ones around us that want what is best for us are those relationships always going to be easy no not necessarily but we want to make sure that we've like done our due diligence and made sure that whoever we're getting involved with is going to be a relationship that is um that is generative right and not depleting and draining us and um so 
we, I just, I'm very like using the word demon is just a hot button issue for me because that, mm-hmm. um, as a pagan, so much of my tradition has been demonized and so many of my gods and my, um, the, the very um, beautiful, amazing spirits that we work with are called demons, um, particularly because I'm an underworld worker, right? I work with the Lord of the Dead. I work with the fairy people. I work with a large class of beings that has lar- by and large been vilified. Um, and this is true for many of the folks. In fact, I, uh, in my research, I focus mostly on people whose traditions had been vilified and marginalized, like witches and um, voodoo practitioners and... Um, you know, tantrics and magicians and, you know, esotericists, occultists. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, like, if more, I say like, like back to like the idea of more than one spirit being in a human body, making up that individual. Um, is that an explanation for sometimes for when we have conflict with ourselves? Sure, right? We can have inner aspects of ourself that um, like want really different things, right? Like you can have like my punk rock self <laughs> wants to like burn it all down on a regular basis. Mm. <laughs> so f- fed up and so frustrated so, or so frustrated with like the systems and the patriarchy and the this and that and the other, you know, and I have to find like ways to discuss and navigate and manage and sometimes give outlet to, you know, that inner aspect of myself. Now, now maybe not everybody has that, that particular kind of an inner aspect. They might have have a rebel or they might have a, uh, you know, a feral or a wild aspect, but, um, you know, that, that part of me, that inner aspect has to somehow come into conversation, um, or at least make friends with some of my other inner aspects, like this goddess aspect of myself, right. That, that is like, can't we all just get along? Mm. And how do we, you know, how do we build a better world? And how do we walk as good, you know, as, as good humans upon the planet with all the other species? And, you know, how do we, how do I share this material, right. That I've spent 20 years of my life dedicated, you know, researching, how do I, how do I share it with the world? in a way that um, people can hear it and receive it and it'll reach the people that, that need to need the message. Right. Cause 20 years ago when I started this research and because of my own need to understand what was going on, there was nothing out there. I couldn't, I couldn't find diddly squat, you know, I mean, a few scant mentions here and there of um, uh, like Ida Craddock's material, which you might be familiar with um, because she's a saint within the OTO. Um, but there was not much else. And so I figured, well, here I am having this experience. I have an academic background. I'm a scholar practitioner. I might as well do the research if nobody else is. Um, and so, you know, that really took me on this journey, but, um, but yeah, it is, um, it is a kind of fun and it can be a little overwhelming at first, but you know, uh, a good transpersonal psychotherapist will usually have enough tools under their tool into their tool belt to be able to work with um, parts dialogue inner aspects and there's some really cool fun um, med- trainings out there like um, 
um, the work of um, family constellation work is a really cool way to do yeah, parts dialogue. Better. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I run into that problem. Like people ask me, like, like, like one of the things you mentioned, like people ask me, like, how can I listen to like this dark, evil music and then talk about spirituality and light? And my answer always is they complement each other. <laughs> Jung said a tree can only grow as high as its roots grow deep. And the dark, and I mean, I don't know if I would say, I mean, let's just take the term evil and take it off. <laughs> because evil, I have a very specific idea about like how we define the word evil. But like, let's talk about dark and light, right? Let's, or mm -hmm. let's talk about the illuminated, right? And then the, the mystery or the darkness. We need both, right? We would go, we would go insane as humans and people do, do go like sort of lose their marbles if they're only in light all the time. Mm -hmm. And people, and, and conversely, people, you know, there's torture, um, devices where people are just in darkness all the time, right? And that, um, so we need this balance of dark and light. We see it in nature. Nature needs winter to contract and shore its resources up, right? The darkness of winter and then the light of the spring where that we're in right now, where everything blooms and is, and is vibrant and, you know, on into summer. And it's a, it's a cycle. It's a, in, in the, in the um, Hindu tradition and the yogic practice, excuse me, they talk about the spanda, the pulsation of contraction and release, contraction and release. And so I think that, you know, uh, as spirit workers, um, it's why I really shy away from the term light worker, right? Because the, the idea of just only working in the light, you're missing, you're missing your foundation, you're missing your depth, you're missing... Um, People talk about enlightenment. I like to talk about endarkenment, right? Where we go into the area that is often invisible or, um, or mysterious or sometimes it's scary because we can't see in the dark, right? But then we find that luminous quality, right? The luminous, almost like a bioluminescence that can arrive in that, um, in the depths. And, um, and it's important to like, to understand that we contain all of that, right? We hold all of that and we, um, to, I think, really be whole psychologically, we have to hold aspects of that, um, and not, not shy away from our angry self or our, you know, um, the parts of us that, um, that dance in more fiercer aspects. It's why, you know, um, a lot of the tantric practices and, and the deities and the pantheon of deities in, in the Hindu tradition, um, you have fierce as well as benevolent, right? In the, in the, um, Haitian tradition, you have the Radha and the Petro, right? You have fierce and you have benevolent and there is a balance and a counterpoint that happens between the two. It's very, very important. And that's often, um, really overlooked in spiritual, um, circles and in discussions of spirituality. Yeah, like even in Kabbalah, you have the pillar of severity and the pillar of mercy. 
Exactly. And how do you balance those two, right? You don't um, balance, if you're a very merciful, benevolent person, you don't balance being merciful by, or you don't balance that pillar by being less merciful and compassionate. You balance it by really exercising your boundaries, right? Really exercising your ability to like hold strong boundaries so that that muscle, that side of the pillar is just as strong as the other side. And then you can sort of weave the two through that, that central, the middle pillar. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that philosophy. Um, so how has your book been received? That's a great question. I mean, it came out just about two weeks ago. I think it was two weeks ago today. So um, I think it's going to be a slow burn book, meaning um, I've, I've got a lot of lovely emails from people um, and, and some like fellow academics saying, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for writing this, you know, um, and I've been, you know, because early versions of this book, um, the research, at least, that sort of is the core of it has have been out since 2011. So I often have people reaching out to me from all over the world saying, I was having these experiences. I thought I was the only one. Thank you so much. You're the, the first person, the only person that I found that is talking about this in a way that isn't shaming me or making this like a negative, scary, awful thing um, that's contextualizing it. So I've had, uh, you know, just more of that, more people sort of reaching out doing that. And then, of course, there's always the crackpots that are like, you know, you're going to hell. <laughs> this is evil. This is, you know, or, or the people that are like, you're talking to spirits. You're married to spirits. You're insane, you know, or whatever. And, you know, that's always going to be part of the mix when you're talking about things that are outside of people's comfort zone or outside of their area of understanding, but I really wrote the book and I'm a little bit of a hard ass about it in the beginning of the book, because I say this book is a work of decolonization. It's a work of feminist, queer, indigenous, academic scholarship and spirituality. And so if you're going to come at me with the demonizing or with the insanity stuff, I'm going to throw at you the conversation around how our Western worldview has colonized our minds to the point where we think that if you can't measure something down into bits and bytes, it's not real. Mm -hmm. And that is a very Western scientific, like, you know, add all the patriarchal adjectives around that because many, many cultures throughout the world that are not, um, co-opted by this Western colonialist worldview have a very different interaction, a very different understanding of um, what it is to be a person, what it is to be human and what it is to be in relationship with, um, with their spirits and with their culture and with their um, ancestors. And so, you know, and as far as, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist, I got my PhD in psychology. So uh, I really tried to root this in, enough of a psychological framework, but I also wasn't going to try and make um, the argument. I wasn't going to try and enter into the argument of our spirits real, 
right? I'm not going to try and enter the art into the argument or go down the pathologizing, which is what Western psychology, um, at least sort of traditional psychology wants to do is pathologize all of this and say, it's, it's, you know, they want to get their DSM out and, you know, start, <laughs> start, you know, categorizing these as hallucinations mm. and blah, 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 blah. There's enough of a basis um, within transpersonal psychological and depth psychological surf- circles to say, actually, no, there is spiritual emergence and there is non-ordinary transcendent experience and there is entheogenic experience and there's all these lovely um, shamanistic indigenous psychological lenses that we can use to understand these kinds of paranormal experience and um, and not invalidate, right, the cultures, the peoples, the beliefs, the traditions that hold these practices as sacred and as um, as valid. And so that's, you know, so that's where I start with, but if people don't read the book, right, if they just look at the title and they, and they make their own opinion about it, then, you know, that's on them. (laughs) Sit with the book, read it. The first part of it is really all of the historical and mythological analysis. The center of the book, the heart of the book really is these amazing stories that I've collected and I've included my own story in there for people to really like compare and contrast and see how different traditions and different people uh, practice this. And, you know, even though that we're talking about vastly different traditions that in many cases don't even talk to each other, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of, um, of uh, similar things that my co-researchers told me. And then the, the third part of the book is like, okay, so now what? Now what do we do with this? And how does it make us a better species? How does it make us a better person? How does it, um, if we feel called to these practices, what are some of the ways that we can um, cultivate them for ourselves? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. And before we wrap it up, where can people find you and find your book? Yeah. So the books are available pretty much um, anywhere online and um, and in stores. I'm, they're starting to pop up in stores as well, bookstores. Um, if those things, if people even right. go to those places <laughs> anymore, are they even around? I don't know. <laughs> and then, um, and then you can also, there's a website for the book just called spiritmarriage.com where you can, um, share your own story if you're having experiences or have a, uh, an, a, a tradition that practices this. Cause I'm constantly still collecting data on, on spirit marriage. And then my, my website for my practice where I, coach and support and and have community around people that are going through um i call it normalizing the paranormal where people are going through these kind of otherworldly experiences that's drmeganrose.com awesome well i'll put those links in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check you out get your book and contact you if they need your services and it has been a pleasure having you on today and we'll have to do this again sometime Thanks. It's been a joy. Thank you. And hang on for one moment, and I just have to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy 
buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable.